Revelations. See ancient artifacts up close and long-lost ancient scrolls. The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. The first session, Apocalypse, How the World Will Really End. There are many ideas of how the world will end. Our own Philip Adams here in Australia had a column, uh, an article in the Weekend in Review a few years ago. It's Apocalypse Now, but how? How will it happen? Philip Adams then unrolled uh, ten scenarios that different people think is to, as to how the world will end. Ten scenarios. Let's go through them quickly with Philip Adams this afternoon. Number one, scenario number one, he said, a terrorist nuclear or biological attack. These terrorists are going to get their hands on sayonara. That's going to be the end of all of us. Scenario number two, said Philip Adams, the threat of epidemics. The superbugs are coming. This is what's going to finish the planet off as we come toward the end. Scenario number three, he said, many people believe the hole in the ozone getting bigger, so we're all going to fry to death. That's a nice way to finish, isn't it? Well, that's scenario number three. Number four, he said, was oxygen depletion. We're going to run out of oxygen and sort of, that's the way it's going to end. This is the fourth. Number five, uh, asteroids are going to smash into the planet. You know, this is a very, many people take this very seriously. I was listening, I think it was ABC Radio a couple of years ago, and they were talking about how they believe asteroids have smashed into the, into the oceans before causing tsunamis. Well, this is scenario number five for the end of the world. Number six was genetic bioengineering. We're getting so smart at fiddling around with the DNA and so on. We're going to, you know, mess things up so badly, that's going to be the finish of us, said Philip Adams, according to many people. Number seven, the religious extremists, and we've had a lot of them down through time. These are the people who are going to cause so much havoc on the planet that it's going to wipe us all out. Number nine, number eight, isn't it? Number eight, social disintegration and ethnic cleansing, like what happened in the Holocaust of World War II or Rwanda and other places around the world. This is going to increase, say some people, as we come toward the end. Scenario number nine, overpopulation, too many mouths to feed. There'll be great fights and wars to get the food, and that's how it's going to finish. Number 10, starvation by water depletion. We're going to run out of water, and that's the way it's all going to finish. Well, Philip Adams finished his column as he came to the end. He said, have a nice day. Well, I guess you'd have a nice day after all that lot, wouldn't you? Great way to start the day. But Philip Adams left off the one scenario in which is the way the world really is going to end as we know it. And that is the biblical apocalypse. This one he didn't even touch on, the real one. So we want to go there this evening, to uh, this afternoon, to understand how the world will really end.
Now we must go back to last evening. You remember we looked at those four horsemen of the apocalypse and then that fifth seal, the souls under the altar, John said in Revelation. Now you remember what we're looking at here is a scroll book is seen in the right hand of God on the throne. And Jesus the Christ takes the scroll book and one by one he breaks these seals. He's the one who can open this book by breaking the seals. Each seal that is broken, we notice, is a step toward his return and eternity. Breaking the seals one by one. We are moving through time, we saw last evening. In other words, as we saw for 2,000 years, Christ has been working toward his return for his people. Now, we noticed last evening that this takes us through seven periods, in actual fact, of Christian history, from the cross of Jesus Christ down to the end of time. These are the steps we take. We noticed, first of all, a white horse, for those of you who weren't here, from 31 to 100 AD. This represented the fact that Christianity was to be triumphant, and it was, we saw. We went to places in the Mediterranean world where Paul went and so on. We noticed some archaeological discoveries connected with the triumph of Christianity. Second seal, a red horse from 100 AD to 313 AD. We noticed that this was a time when persecution came to the Christian church in a big way. Seal number three, the third horseman was from 313 to 538. What did we notice? Christianity that had gone into apostasy. This is a term that's used in the Bible, means a falling away, a departure from the teachings of the Bible. In fact, Jesus had mentioned this, Paul mentioned this, and uh, John mentions this, and also Daniel mentions this. He talks about truth being trodden down in his book. Seal number four, or the fourth horseman, we notice from 538 to 1517, deathly Christianity. Christianity which was dead in itself but caused a lot of havoc through what took place with the Crusades and so on. Then we notice 1517, down to the late 1700s, souls under the altar. This was the martyrs of Jesus, we noticed, and we finished on this last evening. Now we need to move on this afternoon. In the sixth seal, John sees natural events in the world. Notice what he says. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and he says, Behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon, he says, became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded, he says, like a scroll when it is rolled up. So now the scroll is opening up, so to speak. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. That's an earthquake, you see. He says, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, he says, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains 
and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. An interesting term. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? What an amazing seal the sixth seal is. Now this takes us from the late 1700s now down to the return of Jesus Christ or what we call the second coming. You will notice he mentions earthquake. He mentions also cosmic events in the sun and the moon and in the stars. And then he talks about the return of Christ when people call for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. Now, these things that we're going to see now have actually already taken place, some of them. I want you to notice, if you come with me, back to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is looking over the city of Jerusalem. We saw this the other week or two ago. And in Matthew 24, he predicts some of these same events that we're going to, John has just mentioned. We'll come back to them. The signs of Christ's coming and of the end of the world were given by Jesus, we noticed, in Jerusalem, looking over the Mount of Olives right here. You remember that he mentioned, or as he went through his description of what would happen to Jerusalem and the end of the world, he moved through in a interesting way. He began with the events around the time of the apostles and the early church, such as the destruction of Jerusalem. He told them to run for their lives, you remember. He then mentions how there would be great persecution in the, and he's referring to the dark age tribulation or persecution. And then he came to discuss events dealing with the end times because that was the question. When will these things happen? We notice the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world, your coming and the end of the world. Notice what Jesus said right here talking about what would happen after that great period of persecution during the Dark Ages. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, he said, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. You see the same in John in Revelation because Jesus is giving John the revelation as well. He said the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels, he said, with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect, his friends, from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. This is how Jesus portrayed his return. But after this great period of tribulation and after the stars have fallen and the moon and the darkness have come on the earth, he mentioned. Now, many people are not aware that shortly after the tremendous period of persecution that ended toward the late 1700s, that that's, those things exactly happened. You may have heard of the great Lisbon earthquake that came on All Saints Day, November 1, 1755. It was a massive earthquake and seen by some as to be the one that ushered in the other earthquakes that followed after that we know of today. This, by the way, was a huge earthquake 
that then was followed by a massive tsunami. Notice some of the statistics about this Lisbon earthquake. First of all, it was a magnitude 8.5 to 9. That's a whopper even today, of course, bigger than many that we have today. A huge earthquake just off the coast of Portugal. You can even see some of the ruins even today from that earthquake. Here's the Carmo Convent building that was wrecked by that earthquake, still like it was after the earthquake. Not only that, but about 10,000 to 100,000 are the estimates of the number of people that died from the quake and the tsunami that followed. That's a lot of people even in today's understanding. The tsunami was up to 20 metres high in some places. 240 kilometres it moved inland in some places. That's a massive wave, as you can appreciate. And then finally, it was felt right across even to North America and South America, this massive earthquake. The effects of it were felt and uh, some waves were even in some other parts of the world from the tsunami and so on. Then a few years later, we have what we are known as the dark day of May 19, 1780. It's a fascinating phenomena to read about. As the day began to to dawn and we get to about 9 or 10 o'clock, suddenly it became mysteriously dark. This is what happened in the area of what we call New England. And then later that night, the moon appeared a blood red colour. People were petrified, as you can appreciate. Now, this has been written up in, uh, in history books as well. Let's have a look at some of the statements about this day. The sun rose, says R.M. Evans in his book, Our First Century. The sun rose clear and bright, he says, at about nine, depending where you were in this part of the world. Darkness gradually developed. You will notice what Williams says, Professor Williams says, this extraordinary darkness, he says, came on between the hours of 10 and 11 a.m. and continued till the middle of the next night, says Williams. Now, it's interesting to read some of the things that happened. There was a council, a government was, uh, council was going on in the, in the, in the area of Connecticut in the United States, and the members of the council feared this was the judgment day. And, well, we could think that if we were back in those times. Hey, it doesn't usually go dark at nine in the morning and stay dark all day. And so they thought the judgment had come. Notice what one of their councillors said, famous statement actually, I am against adjournment. They said, let's close, the, let's close the council down. We've got more important things to do right now. I'm against adjournment, he said. He said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it's not, one or the other. He said, if it's not, there's no cause for adjournment if it's not going to happen. He says, if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought into the council. You can see what's happening here. It was dark even in their assembly in the daytime. So this is an event that's well documented, but it happened shortly after a lot of this persecution had come to an end. An interesting series of events. Now, that evening, they tell us, the moon appeared blood red and the earth was wrapped in impenetrable darkness. And it says, uh, they said, religious people, 
those people who studying the Bible and so on, they thought it was a fulfillment, a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. They thought of the words of Jesus, you see, at this time in both Revelation and his discussion on the Mount of Olives. Scientists, said this man, Evans again, scientists conjectured it's caused to have been from smoke from fires on the frontier. It doesn't really matter what the cause of the thing was, it happened on time. First an earthquake, then a few years, a massive earthquake, then comes this event. But not long after, a few years after, we have what we call the falling of the stars. You've probably heard of the Leonids. This was the great Leonids of 1833. Even today, we have these uh, these falling meteors that are known as part of the, the Leonids. They happen from time to time, one coming up soon, but never like this at this particular time. In fact, you will notice that it's estimated by some that they fell at 100 to 200,000 even per hour, at least 100,000 per hour. This wasn't, oh, there's a falling, a shooting star, and five minutes later, there's another one. This was falling like rain these meteors on this occasion and it's been one of the greatest meteoric showers it lasted for about nine hours must have been spectacular in fact one writer wrote these words talking about this event no philosopher or scholar has told or recorded he said such an event I suppose like that of yesterday morning a prophet he says 1800 years ago foretold it exactly now I guess the question is, why these signs at this time? How come these interesting events took place one after another, just as Jesus had predicted? There would be a time of persecution that took place. We studied that last evening. We first noticed many people. There was a lot of death and persecution going on in the Inquisitions and so on. And then it heated up again until the late 1700s when it petered out a lot in Europe virtually stop and then right on the heels of that we have these events these cosmic events in this great earthquake now why these signs at this particular time let me tell you that you'll understand very clearly when we have tomorrow's program you'll see very clearly why it happened at this particular time in earth's history we're going to take an incredible journey tomorrow as we look at the spectacular prophecy that Nostradamus missed. And we talked about Israel in the end times as well in our two programs tomorrow. So don't miss that and you'll understand very clearly why these events happened at that time in history. No question about it as, a, as they have been recorded. Then John comes to the sixth seal and the sixth seal, he hears silence in heaven there's no noise notice what he says he said when he opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour what's going on here how come there's this deathly silence in heaven we will understand very clearly the answer to this question as we now move on in looking at how the Bible portrays the final events of planet Earth. So let's have a look at the biblical apocalypse, the 11th scenario, and we'll see very clearly in a moment why there is silence in heaven under the seventh seal. Now, 
the 11th scenario, the one Philip Adams didn't give us, this is when God's empire, the last empire, takes over the kingdoms of this world. And we saw that in the very first program, this rock that smashes the image on the feet and the kingdoms of this world finish. And this rock becomes a huge mountain, we notice, and fills the whole earth. This takes place at the return of Jesus Christ, according to the biblical writers, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The second coming of Christ, or his return, is probably the most talked about subject, except for the death of Jesus that you'll find in the Bible. It goes from the time of Enoch right on down to the book of Revelation, the return of Jesus the Christ. Now, in order to understand this more, we need to answer this question. Why is Jesus Christ coming back? Why is he going to return? There are a number of very Good news reasons this afternoon that we want to see. Number one, when he returns, he is going to raise his friends who have died to life. Notice what Paul said. Paul was writing to his friends in the little town of Thessalonica. And I'll take you to Thessalonica in one of our programs coming up next weekend. We'll see what the archaeologists have discovered there. But he wrote to his friends about the return of Christ to raise his friends to life. The Lord, he said himself, Jesus, in other words, will descend or come down from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and then he said, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, those who accepted Jesus and died believing in Christ, they will rise first, says John. What a day that is going to be when the dead are raised to life. Death is not the end. There's a way out of the box, and it's because of Jesus Christ. And he's going to raise his friends to life. There is no question about that in this book. Number two, he is going to reunite his friends who were torn apart by death. Notice what he says when he writes to his friends in the city of Corinth. We were in Corinth last evening's program. We saw that uh, uh, Paul brought many people to a knowledge of the of Jesus Christ and a hope for the future and a peace in this life today and uh, a meaning in life as we move through it. Notice what he said to his friends in Corinth. After that, he says, we who are still alive. Sorry, we're going back to Thessalonica now. He continues on. We'll come to Paul in Corinth in a moment. As he continues to write to his friends, after the dead have been raised to life, those in Jesus are raised to life. Notice he says, after that, We who are still alive, in other words, there's going to be some people alive when Jesus returns. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. You think about what's going to happen on that day. I think one of the best places to be when Jesus returns is at a cemetery because Jesus is going to raise his friends to life and what a reunion will take place. Perhaps it would could be something like this. The last time you saw your mother or your wife or your husband was in the hospital and you said goodbye in the hospital. We've all been through this. 
But there is coming a day when we'll meet our loved ones again. Death is not going to separate us for eternity. There are many people who think that death is the end, but the Bible says, no, there is a better day coming. The best is yet to come. Perhaps the last time that the parents saw their child was when they were saying goodbye as the child crossed the road and the little child was killed by a car. I was running these programs in Papua New Guinea just four weeks ago. Young kid was coming to the meetings every night with his parents. And one day, one night, they were rushing to the meetings. The little boy jumped out ahead of his parents and that was his final day. I had to go next day to help the parents and the, and the people, his friends and so on. But I'm glad that little boy loved Jesus because he will live again. That is the hope of the resurrection. So there's coming a day when our children, if we've lost them in tragic circumstances, will be put back in the arms of their parents. This is the day of reunions. What a day that will be when Jesus returns to reunite his friends. He's not only coming to reunite, he's coming to give his friends new, young, eternal bodies. The young people here today, they think you never get old. I got news for you, you guys. You get old. It comes pretty quick, quicker than you want. Soon you can't walk like you used to walk or run like you used to run or see like you used to see. You put glasses on and all sorts of things on. But God is going to give us new bodies when Jesus returns. Notice now what Paul wrote to his friends in Corinth. Listen, he said. You can almost hear the excitement in Paul. Listen, I tell you a mystery, a tremendous secret. We will not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die. Some of us will be alive, but we will all be changed. He says in a flash, as quick as a blink, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, that's the trumpet that blows when Jesus returns, we just read about. Jesus mentioned that. He said, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. In other words, these bodies of ours that can get sick and wear out and the older we get, the worse they wear, right? These bodies of ours, he said, we will be raised imperishable with bodies that cannot perish. When the peri- And we shall be changed, he says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. In other words, we cannot die after this event. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. I don't know about you, my friends, this afternoon, but I'm glad for the tremendous confidence and the hope that this book offers. There are many people today who think death is the end. There is nothing more. The Bible says, no, death is not the end. Jesus will raise his friends to life. And not only that, we'll all have new, eternal, young bodies. Imagine kids who have never been able to run. Someone's a paraplegic, a quadriplegic. He's lost the use of his limbs or he never had the use of limbs. We're going to run like the wind one day. That'll be a tremendous new day when we have eternal health with no sickness and no disease on our planet. He's coming again, he says, to gather his friends to be with him. God loves us so much he wants us to spend eternity with him. 
Notice what Jesus said. His, his friends, the disciples, were very discouraged. And he said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe God? Then he said, believe also in me. He said, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Now, that word in the Greek means rooms. Like God has a big house and we all live in the house with him in a room. Like a great big family gathering, he said. What a beautiful picture. He says, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, he says. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, he says, and receive you to myself that where I am, there, he says, you may be also. Now, the years, the centuries might have rolled on, but he will come again. He even indicated when Jesus was here that there would be a delay in his coming that we could not yet understand. But he said, I will come again. And as we've seen in the prophecies of this book, when God makes a prediction and makes a promise, he fulfills it. He will come through. He is coming again. Now, actually, this language comes from ancient Hebrew wedding language. You see, in the ancient world, when a marriage took place, a young man and a young woman would be betrothed together. And they would have a special ceremony where they would drink some wine together. And then the girl would be in her parents' home and she would wait for the groom to come and pick her up. The groom would prepare a room in his father's house for his bride. Now, she didn't know when he was going to come. She just always had to be ready. And then he would turn up. And Jesus told stories using this Hebrew language, uh, wedding language. And so he would arrive and she needed to be ready to go with him. So Jesus is using the same language. He says, listen, I'm going away because I'm going to prepare a room for us in my father's house. I'm going to take you to be with me as the bride, so to speak. In other words, God loves us and wants us to spend eternity with him. Now, the book of Revelation uses this similar language. Remember last night, we noticed that God's people are likened to a bride, the bride of the lamb. And the Bible says in Revelation, these words... We noticed them last night. The marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. She's ready for the one to come and take her home. Beautiful language. Then the angel said, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. So the language that's used here by Jesus when he says, I'm coming to take you home, is the language of love. God's love for his friends compared to the marriage relations. And then Jesus comes, and he comes as a great conqueror on a white horse to take his people home to be with him. Now, you'll notice what Jesus said. Our Father, who is in heaven, we say that in the Lord's Prayer. He said, I will take you to my Father's house. Well, where's the Father's house? Well, we, as we say the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. Uh, he's up there, and he said, I'm going to take you to be with my Father, with me in my Father's house. And we are going to spend time with God, the Father, and with Jesus in that heavenly home. That's why this 
promise of the second coming is called the blessed hope in the Bible. And from the Old Testament right through to the end of Revelation, God's people have longed for this great event. In fact, the book of Revelation, the Bible ends almost with those same words, John As he signs off on the last page of Revelation, he says, Even so come, Lord Jesus, because of the blessed hope that is going to await his people. Notice the way Paul put it as he wrote to his friend Titus. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us. This is the picture that we have in the Bible. Now, how will Jesus return? We can see why he's going to come again, why he's going to return the second time for those great reasons to take his people, to give them eternal bodies and so on, to reunite his friends. But how is it going to happen? What's going to take place when Jesus returns? Well, Jesus the Christ, as he overlooked the, the city of Jerusalem on that day when he gave the indicators of his coming, he also talked about how he would come and so, so did some of his friends. Notice what he said, talking of this great event. He says, for as the lightning that comes from the east and is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You know, when my wife and I, and our daughters were living in America when I was studying archaeology. We lived in Michigan, and they had these humongous thunderstorms. I mean, we're talking thunderstorms. You could put your head under the pillow and still see the lightning. You thought the thunder was right there in the room. Bob, you've probably been to Michigan. That's incredible thunderstorms. Well, the Bible says the coming of Jesus is going to be like that. Just as the lightning lights up the sky from the east to the west, he said, so will the coming, my coming be. It's going to be very visible when he returns. Notice what it says here. Then will appear. People are going to see this great event. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. This means the people who have turned their back and want nothing to do with the great offer of eternal life that we've been talking about, sadly. People will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. They're going to see Jesus come on the clouds of heaven. With power and great glory. You've seen the fireworks of Sydney here on New Year's Eve. Let me tell you, that's going to look like a candle compared to this. This is the greatest sound and light show that's ever taken place. It says, with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect. That's his friends. They will gather them, it says, from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. God is going to gather his friends to himself. Now, this is why you can appreciate when John saw the sixth seal, All he heard was silence in heaven because we just read the angels are coming with Jesus. Heaven will be empty. There'll be no one singing like only heaven can sing. It will be silent because they're all coming for God's kids, you and me. 
That's what he's talking about here. Heaven will be silent for a space of half an hour, so to speak. It'll be quiet because Jesus is coming for the greatest event on planet Earth. He's coming to rescue his kids. Somebody's going to be blowing a trumpet. You're not only going to see Jesus come, you're going to hear things. You don't sleep when someone blasts a trumpet in your ear, do you? Biggest trumpet I ever saw was this one in Switzerland. What a monster this was beside the the roadway. But somebody, many angels are going to be blowing trumpets because they're coming for God's friends, the Bible tells us. This is no secret coming. You may have heard of a secret rapture, but let me tell you, this is not what the Bible says. There is no secret about this great event as we've just seen. It's going to be the greatest sound and light show ever experienced. In fact, you notice where some of this idea comes from that Jesus is coming secretly. I'm not sure how people get this idea, but it probably comes from Paul because people misunderstand what Paul was saying. Notice what he said, therefore keep watch. In other words, be alert at such a time as this, because you do not know, he said to his friends, what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. In other words, a thief comes unexpectedly. So now he gave this punchline. So you also must be ready, he said, because the Son of Man comes at an hour when you do not expect him. He comes unexpectedly when we don't even realize he's about to come. He comes and then it is forever too late. That's why Paul said, be ready because he's coming when we don't expect him. He's not coming silently, quietly like some thief sneaks in. He's coming unexpectedly like a thief. That's how he's coming with the great sound of trumpet and everybody will see him when he comes to gather his own. In fact, Jesus warned us against teachings about him being coming secretly. Notice what he he wrote at this same time. He said, so if anyone tells you, there he is out there in the wilderness, he's out there somewhere, do not go out. Or he is in the secret chambers, he's come secretly. Do not believe it, Jesus said, because he's not coming that way. He's coming with a great sound for his children. He's coming to take his people home. He's coming publicly. He's coming plainly. He's coming powerfully. I wish Philip Adams had written this up in the weekend review. What a pity he didn't. Now, there's a couple of other things that perhaps we should mention because some people have been under some understandings which need to be corrected lest we be deceived in the end of time. Christ returns for his people after the Antichrist. There are some people who believe that the Antichrist first appears and then Jesus the Christ comes. Not at all, according to Jesus. Notice what he says. Now, this is Paul, first of all, here. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, Paul is writing to his friends in Thessalonica here, and he's talking about the coming of the Antichrist as well. Watch what he says. This is Paul's discussion of Antichrist, and we'll understand more clearly next weekend. Brothers, he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, just as Jesus said, and he had told, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled 
either he says by spirit or by word or by letter as from us. Some people have been saying Jesus has already come. That's what they're saying. He's writing about. He said, don't believe that sort of stuff. He says, as though the day of Christ had come, let no one deceive you. You can see this man is deadly earnest in trying to protect his friends from deception. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, that means the coming of Jesus to gather his friends, will not come unless, he says, unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. This is Paul's Antichrist the son of perdition. So he says, listen, Antichrist actually comes before Jesus returns to gather his friends. I wish people had read these texts. It would help us because let me tell you, my friends, we need to understand the devil we've noticed is bent on two things, deception and destruction. Why does he deceive? We noticed in our early program, one of our early programs, he deceives to destroy. So that's why Jesus tells us, you shall know the truth And the truth will set you free. Truth is vital because the devil uses deceptions to his advantage to destroy. Now, Christ returned also for his people after the tribulation. Many people think, no, Christians don't go through tribulation. But this is not what the Bible actually teaches in the book of Revelation. In the Revelation, we have the seven plagues and Jesus returns after the plagues for his people, which is called the great tribulation. Notice what he says. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people and language standing, he says, before the throne and before the lamb. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. That means the plagues, the final events. They've come out. In other words, they've gone through it. How do we know they've gone through it? Because keep reading what he says. They have washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the lamb. In other words, they've accepted Jesus' death for them. They shall neither hunger anymore, so they've been through hunger. They will neither thirst anymore because they've been through thirst. And the sun shall not strike them. Now, if you've read the plagues, one of the plagues is tremendous heat in the end. And John says they're not going to be under heat anymore. They have come out of those plagues, that tribulation, and now Jesus comes. So Jesus comes after, but God protects his people in those plagues. And we don't have to be afraid of those things because if you read Psalm 91, He tells us that no plague shall come near the dwelling of God's friends because he shields us, he protects us. Like he did the Israelites when the plagues fell in Egypt, God protected his people and they did not suffer those great last plagues of the Egyptians that they had. Now, how can we be ready for this, the great event? What is portrayed in both the sixth and the seventh seals, the final cosmic events that we notice that lead to the second coming of Jesus. And then there's this silence because God is coming for his friends and heaven is empty. How can we be ready for this, the greatest event of planet Earth, which is soon to come? We have noticed that it's going to be soon because that great image of the golden head, the silver arms and chest and so on. We have taken, notice that, right down to the feet. And the next thing is that rock. 
We notice the signs of the coming that Jesus gave. Now today we've noticed even cosmic signs and we've seen those. We're moving toward the final events of planet Earth. And we are going to see, especially next weekend, as we move on the next two weekends, we're going to see very clearly the tremendous current events that show us very clearly that this event is soon to take place and Jesus will come for his friends. How can we be ready? Well, I think it's best illustrated as we end this first session by what happened to a young, a little girl. She was lost in uh, one of the great cities of America and she was crying her eyes out, wanting to find mum and dad. Wanting to get herself home again. And a policeman came up to her and he said, Say, say, little girl, what's the problem? She said, I'm lost. And away she went, all those tears flowing. After the policeman calmed her down a little bit, he said, Say, say, little girl, what's your name? She said, My name's Sally, Mr. Policeman. He said, Well, Sally, what's your dad's name? Well, she said, Mum calls him darling. Well, that wasn't getting anywhere. So he said to her, Well, look, what's your daddy's name? Well, mummy calls him honey and still not getting anywhere. So he said, now, listen, Sally, I want to help you find your way home. He said, is there something near your house that's really big so that if we got you near that big thing, you could get home from that big thing? And the little girl thought for a little while and she thought and thought. Yes, Mr. Policeman, she said, right next door to my house, there's a church and on the church, there's a big cross. Mr. Policeman, if you can get me to the cross, I can get home from the cross. And that's the truth, my friend. That's the truth of what John has been sharing with us. The way home, that means the eternal home, the way to be ready for the coming of Jesus and the greatest sound and light show this world has ever experienced that is soon to take place is to go, so to speak, to the cross. In other words, to accept Jesus and say, God, you know my life. I need your help. Give me your salvation that comes through Jesus. And the moment we do that, we actually begin the life eternal. It begins now and it will continue on when Jesus returns for his friends. This is the way to have the way home. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. 